we'll begin in verse 28. Uh, we're still with uh, Jesus' conversation with this woman he met in, at the well in Sychar in, in the region of, of Samaria. And he uh, talks to her, and, and uh, we discover many things, and uh, we look on to what Jesus says about himself and, and his food this morning. Beginning in verse 28, this is God's word eternally true. John 4, 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Here ends our reading. Let's uh, respond in thankfulness. There's a response uh, up here on the screen and in your bulletin as well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks indeed. Let's pray. Um, I get excited about food. Uh, my mom uh, sends to me. Yeah, I see some heads nodding there. Uh, my mom sends uh, to us uh, Harbor Sweets, which is one of those, you know, all those companies that do things at Christmas time. You know, and they make all their money in December when they, you know, they, they offer to give you a convenient gift to give to somebody and send it right to their home. And so these are chocolates and, and we love them. And, and whenever they come, we say, yes, they've, they've come. Um, <laughs> uh, some of you have dropped off uh, goodies for us. We love those too. And we eat them all up. Uh, I know I'm not the only one. When we came to Raleigh, one thing we uh, learned quickly was our mother church was in North Raleigh and the folks there loved food. And they talked about food and restaurants and movies that they had seen all the time. It was like, wow, this is like, I'd never been around such a, such a thing. But they love food. Oh, have you been to this restaurant? And they would kind of one-up each other. You know, oh, but have you tried this place? You know, and just all back and forth, all this really excited about food. It's okay to be excited about food. God is, you know, as Paul, God tells us through Paul, God's made it all. And so we can eat it and be thankful. He tells us as he writes to Timothy. And so that's good. But but we do this all with a, a grain of salt or all in perspective. Uh, you know, it's okay to, to love a particular kind of food and get excited about that. But here in this passage, we realize 
that's not really where where we live. Um, that's not the thing that gives us this this deep happiness and and joy uh, in life. Um, this restaurant or that restaurant or this kind of food. And so as you look in your outline here, you can, if you like to fill out blanks in an outline, you can, you can do that. If you want to just listen, if you learn better that way, um, that's fine uh, too. But God says to us uh, here, and it's your number one there, to have your food, that is what you pursue in life. Your food, what you pursue in life to, to live. Uh, the thing that you're getting for life. Have your food, what you pursue in life, be not, that's your blank, be not the common, the physical, the everyday, the ordinary. Don't have that be your food. Yeah, you, you need physical food, so so eat. That's good, and God has given us food to eat and enjoy. The scriptures say this, and, and in the celebrations of God's people, they eat food. The fellowship offerings given at the temple were mainly eaten by those who brought the offerings, and they enjoyed those offerings, and God commanded them to eat those things. There's even a time when, when Aaron gives a sacrifice, and he and his sons are supposed to eat of it, and he doesn't. And Moses says, what are you doing? God's commanded that you eat of this. And, and there's trouble for Aaron. But, but Aaron's given this excuse because he's just had two sons die. And he can't eat. His heart, his heart is sick. And the Lord says, okay. But, but food is good for us. And God has created the food for us uh, to enjoy, to make us healthy, to give us energy and all that kind of thing. But don't have that be the stuff of life for you. Um, eating, eating food. Um, this season, there are um, uh, lots of uh, gifts uh, that are given. Um, one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I, I have just weird Christmas songs. I'll talk about it more tonight that I like. Um, but one of my favorite Christmas, we had the John Denver Rocky Mountain Christmas Christmas album. Um now, if you were around in the 70s, you know, you know, we didn't even know he was country. Uh, and if you like country music, then great, we're together here. If you don't like country music, please excuse me. I didn't know he was country either um, back in the 70s. He was just that popular. So we got the John Denver Rocky Mountain Christmas album, which is the best Christmas album ever invented. You can laugh. That's okay. <laughs> But even though I'm a pastor and all that, two of the songs that I like most on this album are two, two songs that have kind of, well, they have something to do with Christmas. One song is, is called Aspen Glow, and it's just about John Denver loved Aspen and he loved nature. And he was a, a, a mother nature boy, as Paul McCartney would put it there. Um, but uh, one of the lines in this is he's talking about different things that come along with, with winter, with Aspen, but also with Christmas. And one of the lines is, see how much you may receive. And I remember as a kid being a non-believer, listening to this album and thinking, is that okay <laughs> to see how much I may receive? I mean, I wanted to receive a lot, but I knew there was probably something wrong with that, considering how much... I may receive, but but this reveals something about us. You know, John Denver was just giving the the okay there to being greedy for Christmas gifts, like we were as kids, probably. Uh, but 
but this reveals something about our hearts. We seek for things, for stuff, for physical things in life to give us satisfaction. You know, if I get, you know, this new pair of shoes or this ba this new basketball, or if I get this FX track set, you know, then, then I'll be happy. Uh, or we can do that with relationships. If I just have somebody that I, you know, a, uh, somebody I can marry, then I'll be happy. And we, we look for physical stuff, the daily bread, stuff of life, thinking that will satisfy us. And we can see this even with the, the attitude of the disciples here. Now, now, they were right to consider that Jesus needed food to eat. But as he did so often, especially in the Gospel of John, he takes the opportunity to take the physical stuff of life that we understand very well because we're dealing with it daily and to say there's really something spiritual that's parallel here that we ought to that we ought to consider that's beyond the common, beyond the everyday, beyond the ordinary stuff of of life and jobs and food and that kind of and that kind of thing. The world, just note this in your minds, the world goes after the physical. The world thinks all life is, is the physical. Um, the world thinks, you know, a relationship with someone you marry is about, ultimately about the physical. Um, you know, good luck with that when you turn 70, right? Um, and, and so it's not. And so there's great wisdom that God has for us that life is beyond the physical. We'll see in chapter 6 as we go along in the Gospel of John that people got all excited because Jesus created all this bread and they ate all they wanted to. And they wanted to make Jesus their king because of it. And Jesus has to, to quell their enthusiasm there because it wasn't yet his hour to go to the cross with this upswell of him being a, being a king. Uh, but the disciples are worried about this. You can look down in your Bibles there, verse 31. Verse 31, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Much ado. Uh, but Jesus knows what satisfies a human being, and so he says something about himself. And Jesus is always kind of twofold for us. The, the first part of Jesus that we really love and appreciate and absolutely can't do without is that he dies for us on the cross, bearing our sins in his body. But also, Jesus gives us an example in his life, in his incarnation, in these basically three, four years in which we have an account of his life. He, he gives us an example of how to live. And this is one of those things he's teaching us about, about how to live. Um, he knows what satisfies us. He says, I have, verse 32, next verse there for you. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, number two, number two. So don't pursue the ordinary. Don't pursue what the world is pursuing. You know, as, as uh, I was an English major, Wordsworth or Coleridge, getting and spending. You know, the world is too much with us. Um, pursue instead, number two, as food to you, something as basic as food, something you need throughout your day. Pursue as food to you, doing God's will. Doing God's will. This is what satisfies you. This is what satisfies the human soul, whether the individual human soul realizes that yet or not. 
But certainly we as Christians, this is something we're supposed to understand. This is something we're supposed to get in our heads and get in our hearts. What satisfies me is doing God's will. Um, and we do God's will as, here's your next blank, as Jesus did. Jesus gives us this, us this perfect example of doing God's will. Now, we always talk about this in a little funny way. Jesus doing God's will, we mean Jesus is doing the Father's will. Um, we do the Father's will and Jesus' will, along with you know the Holy Spirit's empowerment in this. But we see this in verse 34. Um, see verse 34 there. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Um, really referring to the fact that he didn't sin all through his life, but then to finish his work as well. That's speaking of going to the cross, to finish the work that, that God has given me. Um, this is our food. It was Jesus' food, and he shows us too what our lives are to be about, doing the will of God. So don't go for, don't have your life be about everyday ordinary stuff. Moses told God's people in uh, Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, it's your preparing to hear God's word. So on, the, on your front page there at the bottom, um, he, said, he said this, um, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Um, this is Moses as he's speaking in Deuteronomy about what's going to give you the good life in the promised land. What's going to get you, you know, it's what Jesus said, you know, seek God and, and, and him first and all these other things will be added to you. As Jim read to us, you know, the, God clothes the lilies of the field and they're not trying. They can't go from beyond where they're rooted and yet he clothes them. Solomon in all his splendor is not clothed as, as these or Look at the birds of the air. You know, God provides for them. They're not planting crops and then going back to those crops and eating from that place. They're just flying around. And God provides for them things and, and gives them the ability to find that from flying around, what they need to eat. And so Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your food to eat. Don't worry, as you say to me, Rabbi, eat, eat something. And we're not to worry about those things either. Rather, we're to worry about fulfilling God's will. God, help me walk in your ways today. I know you'll, you'll take care of me in, in other ways. Uh, this is what Jesus does. First Peter 2.22 tells us he had no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus, 100% of the time, was doing his father's will. So again, Jesus is our example. John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Um, this is his food, to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus cared about this, doing the father's will, so much so that even when the father's will for him, for Jesus, was to die, for our sins. Now, that, that's not a command that we're given. We can't find that in the, in the law, in the Bible, but that's a command that Jesus has given. 
to die, you yourself, Jesus, as a sacrifice, not for your sins, but for the sins of, but for the sins of other people. Even when that is what is doing the Father's will, Jesus does it. That's how committed Jesus is to doing the Father's, to doing the Father's will. Um, and what's the Father's will? Mark 10:45. It's and Jesus knew that he didn't get surprised when he arrived on earth that that was going to be the Father's will for him. That was his intent when he came to be incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so Mark 10:45, Jesus said, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve." and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to do the Father's will. The Father's will was to love us, to have compassion upon us, to have our sins removed from us so that we could be in his presence. And so he placed our sins on Jesus' body and sacrificed him instead. Um, so this is Jesus' commitment. Jesus had been promised in Psalm 2 uh, which was also promised to David. And Jesus is the son of David, has this promise as well. Ultimately, God promises David in Psalm 2, and that's David's response to the Davidic covenant, which we can find in First uh, Chronicles 17 and Second Samuel 7. Psalm 2 is David responding to God's promise that God would give David a people and that he would be their king. And so we see this come true fully in Jesus in Psalm 2. But the issue is this. Jesus has to buy his people. He has to buy his people out of their slavery. See, we're people, as Jesus would later say in the Gospel of John as well, in John 8, whoever sins is a slave of sin. And so we were all slaves of sin before we came to faith in Jesus. We were out there sinning. We were slaves to sin. And guess who was our master? Not Pharaoh. He was not our slave master like he was for the Old Testament Israelites. They had to do his will or else. They had no choice but to do Pharaoh's will. But this is all a, a physical representation, a shadow of what it's like for us and our souls we are slaves to sin prior to coming to know Jesus with Satan as our master, the master, the king of the dominion of darkness, the prince of the power of the air. This is how scripture refers to Satan himself in Colossians, Colossians 2 and, and uh, Ephesians 2 as well. And so it's no wonder when Jesus arrives back into heaven in Revelation 5, upon his ascension, that, that what is said of him is that he has bought us with his blood. Listen to what heaven proclaims of Jesus as he appears back in heaven, having been during his incarnation on the earth and away from heaven. He appears back there at the beginning of Revelation 5. And in Revelation 5, 9, it says, Heaven sang a new song, and here's what they sing to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll. The scroll is the list of God's elect, those who will ever be saved. And it's sealed with seven seals. And no one's worthy to open that scroll. Here's why they're not worthy to open that scroll. If you want this people, if you want to be their king, if you want to open these seals, 
you got to buy this scroll. Unless you bought this scroll with the names of these people who you can claim as the citizens of heaven, the citizens of, of you in your kingdom, you can't have this scroll and, and loose its seals and read their names and call them into your kingdoms, right? Like in, well, for those of you who are older at recess and in gym class, when your name is called and you get to be on that team. That's what we get to hear at final judgment. But here's what Jesus had to do. The people in heaven say, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. Now they've just determined that nobody in heaven was worthy. And here's why no one in heaven was worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. To have a people who would be his in its kingdom. Because you were slain, Jesus. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus purchased us. This was Jesus doing the will of the Father, purchasing the people. The Father had their names all written out. But Jesus had to buy us. He had to buy us from our slavery, right? Like you could buy someone out of slavery. And in the New Testament era, everyone who was a slave had gone into basically voluntarily and could buy their way out of their own slavery. Uh, but even in American slavery, which is something very different than what we see in Scripture, someone could be bought out of their slavery. Right? Uh, but Jesus buys us. He has bought us. If we're a believer here, if you're a believer here, you have been bought out of your slavery to sin by Jesus. And the currency used to buy your freedom was Jesus' blood. And so Jesus sheds his blood and he buys, he buys us there. Um, so Jesus sheds his blood, and that's him doing the Father's will. He obeyed the Father, in other words, even in this. So A, in your outline there, 2A. Jesus did the will of the Father, even when that meant pursuing his own death. And realize that Jesus pursued his own death. He said the things he needed to say. He did the things he needed to do in the right places to get everything set up for his own death. So even at the Last Supper, he turns to Judas and says, do what's in your heart. And he sends Judas off to do this. He doesn't have, he doesn't say, everybody tackle Judas, let's tie him up. No, the disciples don't even know what's going on. And they're saying, no, we don't want this to happen to you, for you to be betrayed. And they say, is it I? If it's me, tie me up so I won't betray you. But instead, Jesus just privately says to Judas, go, go and do it. Um, he says the things that infuriate the high priest. Are you the Christ, the son of God, which was David language? Are you claiming to be our king? And Jesus one-ups him. He not only says this, he says, I am. But then he claims to be the eternal king who will judge them in the end. And you will see the Son of Man returning in the clouds. And they knew what that meant. And as soon as Jesus said that, the high priest, even though he had no witnesses that could agree with each other, he says, what more have we need for witnesses? We've heard the blasphemy. So Jesus pursues his own death because he zealously was pursuing obeying the Father. 
And that's a lesson for us. We're to zealously obey the Father. Not to be accepted by him, but we know, but because we know his will is best for us. So if someone's will is the best for you, zealously pursue it. Now B, to B. Jesus doing the Father's will was his work, was his food. Jesus doing the Father's will, uh, which was dying for his people. That was his finishing his work. Has meant salvation for all his people. Make that connection. Doing the will of God on Jesus' part has made salvation for his people. Apart from that, no salvation. Um, and so, you know, we, we uh, Jim read for us Hebrews 10, 7 through 10. And so that can be a confusing passage there. And, and God says, Jesus. Now here's the conversation. Hebrews 10 that we read. It's a conversation between the Father and Jesus the Son. And the Father says, with burnt offerings and sacrifices, I'm not pleased. Jesus, I didn't send you to the earth to offer an ox, a bull, or a goat. And if you only give that to me, I am not pleased. Instead, the Father says to Jesus, a body have I prepared for you. Get that? That sounds funny when we read it. But when we understand this as a conversation between the Father and Son, then we get it. God, the Father, has given Jesus a body to sacrifice. Jesus, that body you're walking around in, that's your sacrifice to me. That's what I'm going to place the sins of the people I've sent you to redeem. That's the body. That's the body you are going to sacrifice. Not a bull or a goat. Not a lamb. If you offer that, I will not be pleased. And so what's Jesus say? I am here on earth. I am here to do your will, O God. And he displaces the old bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons with the new, his own body. Now, once for all, the sacrifice of Jesus' body for us. So Jesus doing the Father's will is what gets us salvation. Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice uh, for us. Um, so Colossians 1.22, Paul writes there, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now see, see, know that as in Jesus' case, your doing, your doing of God's will brings good things. We're to make this connection as Christians. One, we're make the, to make the connection that doing God's will doesn't earn me salvation. Jesus doing God's will earned me salvation. My salvation is about Jesus doing the will of the Father. Okay, that's very clear from Scripture. And we see that in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 10. That's what earns me salvation. But in our lives, we're, God calls us not to live our lives like an idiot. And idiots live their lives spurning the will of God, spurning the commands of God. Because God has framed human beings and he knows what's good for them. And so he gives us commands so that we can live according to them. Like you hear me say often, we don't put strawberry preserves in our gas tank. That's not good for our cars. 
We put gasoline in our gas tank because that's what's good for our cars. And so when your dad explains to you as a five-year-old, this is gasoline and we put it in our cars. And son, we don't put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in our car unless maybe we're Tessa. She likes peanut butter and jelly sandwiches a lot. She offered Mallory a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the hospital a day after Mallory was born. Or maybe that day. You know, Tessa loved her sister. And so she walked up to her with her half-eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwich and wake mad. Um, but, but God gives us laws. God gives us commands. Not because he doesn't like us. Not because he doesn't have a way to save us. He saves us through what Jesus does. Through Jesus doing of his will. But he gives us his commands because good thing, we're, we're framed. The earth is framed. The earth works according to God's commands. And as we fulfill these commands, we do these commands, things get better and better for us. When I am honest, things are better for me. And you know what? That involves me in admitting sin. But we fear that and we ought not to fear it because our sins are forgiven by the one who it counts with. We fear that, but we ought not to. You know how much healing happens when we tell somebody, you're right, I'm sorry. You know how much healing happens in a relationship when we do that? You're right, I'm sorry. We fear that because we think they're going to slap us across the face, right? But instead, that's what they're longing to hear. Um... Anyway, so we know that doing God's will brings good things for us, just like Jesus showed us. Uh, the scriptures tell us this, you know, Philippians 2, 9 through 10. It tells us that doing God's will, that is Jesus humiliating himself, taking the form of a servant and, and obeying the Father, even to death on a cross, equals this. That's verses 5 through 8, verses 9 through 11 that God raises him from the dead and sits him at his right hand and gives him, Jesus, the name above all names so that every knee shall, that's pretty good. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's a king word, that he is Lord. So all will bow before him. You know how that happens? He obeys the father. And so we've got little pictures of that in our own lives. We obey the Father, not because it's the way he accepts us. He accepts us because our sins have been placed on Jesus. We obey the Father because that just brings good things. We're, we're honest. We do right. We live for other people instead of for ourselves. We, we ask the question, well, what would I want from me if I were that person? Right? Do unto others as you would have them do for you. And there's great satisfaction in that in our souls that I haven't been selfish, that I won't get called out for my selfishness. And if I do get called out for my selfishness, I will be able to speak truly and show that I wasn't being selfish. Uh, we watched the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, last night. I love the movie. Um, I was, you know, kind of a little touchy about it when my kids didn't get it. Uh, but, you know, if you've seen that movie, it's, you know, if we can get over the 1947 stuff, um, I love the 1947 stuff, but, but if we can get over that, we see here's, and, and you know, you know, it's, it's this dramatic irony, irony, you know, all the good George Bailey has done for everybody and that nobody has seen. 
And in those little scenes, and, and it's a wonderful life, right? You've got the, the angels talking and you can hear their voices again. It's Clarence and God or whoever that's supposed to be. They don't define it. And saying that, you know, he saves his pharmacist has his, that he's working for as a kid. Um, has his son die in the war and he gets a telegram and he's so distraught he's drunk and he puts together a a, a, a potion or whatever you know some medicine and has you know George Bailey deliver it but George Bailey sees that he's putting some kind of poison in this and so so George doesn't deliver this to the person and the pharmacist gets a call where's my medicine and so George gets back and George gets slapped in the ear by this pharmacist back in those days when you could do such a thing to someone else's kid. <laughs> and then he has hearing loss for the rest of his life. But then the pharmacist finds out, you know, George explains to him, you were upset and I understand you were upset. And, you know, he's just really kind to him. And then the pharmacist realized you've, you've saved me. I didn't kill somebody and you saved my career here as a pharmacist. And he, and he hugs George Bailey and, and the voices, did anyone ever, did George ever tell anybody about that? And the answer is no, right? You know, and so, so it's a wonderful life. It's a great movie because he's done all these things for all these people without getting any recognition. And he just hears stuff and he, and he says, but they'll be happy if I eat my happiness right now, if I don't get, if I don't go to college. If I take the bank another four years. And so, you know, and he's done all these things. And, and so that's good for us and good for our soul. And that's where that movie gets at that I like so much. We do stuff and we don't worry about people seeing it like our deacons. They do so much stuff that you guys don't see. And they don't worry about seeing it. And there's so much inward satisfaction of that because God sees. It's good for us to do the will of God. Um, it, it, it makes us feel good, but also good things happen for us relationally and, and for us personally. And so this is why James, um, the, the uh, Jesus' half-brother, writes in James one twenty-five, but the man who looks intently at the perfect law, that's how he speaks of the commands of God. He calls them the perfect law that gives freedom. We're freed from our slavery to sin. We're freed from our selfishness. We're freed from what we think will be best for us and freed to follow what God knows is best for us. Those are his commands. The man who looks intently in the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, living a life of having your food be doing the will of God. The one who continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Doing the will of God is not a bummer. Doing the will of God is not a thing of, of, of guilt and, oh, I didn't get to do this. Doing the will of God is a thing of inward satisfaction that nobody understands. And we sit like Jesus does in front of his disciples and says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. You know, I, I, I did okay in high school and my classmates look at me and say, what in the world is he doing? Even when they find out what he's, what I'm, what he's, what I'm doing, sorry to be Bo Jackson for you there. I mean, even, even when they find out what I'm doing, they say, well, you must have a big church by now, huh? And I said, no, it's a small church. And I see their puzzlement. And I know I have food to eat and I'm so rich. And they know nothing about it. Because there's a sweetness in doing the will of the Lord. 
There's a sweetness in, in the world looking at us and saying, what? There's a sweetness in you arriving at church at Rainbow Lanes and not in a great cathedral somewhere that looks nice. Um, there's a sweetness to that. God sees that. God sees your sacrifice. You're doing the will of God. You're here. We offer God's word and nothing else. That's our church. We're a food truck. You know that, right? Right? We, have, we spent no money on chairs. We spent, uh, we spent no money on... on uh, we're not the cheese factory. There are no murals on the wall. Uh, we've spent nothing for our, our wait staff to eat. We've spent no high money on on uh, uh, chefs to come in, um, no no ambiance, right? There we are. There used to be stripes painted up here. <laughs> Same stripes that are out there. Um, and God sees that. You're here because you love the will of God. You're here because you love God's word. That's all we offer, and that's by intent. We don't want you to get confused and, and, and in a cloud of, of that, that being a Christian is about something else than knowing God and serving him. That's what being a Christian is about, knowing God and serving him. Um, so have this be your food as well. Do the Father's will as he lays it out for you in the Bible. Now next, number three. Number three. Pursue, as part of doing God's will, as food to you, growing the church as Jesus did. Now we talked about this, and we're going to just hit the other side of the another side of the coin, uh, so to speak. Doing do part do as part of God's do God's will as part of uh, your food, uh, growing the church as Jesus did. This is really the context for this passage. What is Jesus talking about? What's his food? His food is talking to the people who are coming from this Samaritan town. That's his food. That's what he lives for. He didn't come to the earth to eat food. You know the code. Um, <laughs> uh, he didn't come to earth to eat food. Uh, he came to earth to feed people God's word, to feed them the gospel. That's the food they really needed, though they didn't know it. So he says, I have food that you know nothing about. And that's his food, growing the church, growing the number of people who understand his grace, his forgiveness how they can have eternal life through belief in him. And so the punchline of this passage is all these people believe. So we take part in that too. Again, Jesus is example. He is the gospel for us. We, we believe in him and we have eternal life. That's the cross side of it. But he's also example for us. His food was to tell people about himself. And our food is to tell people about our great God, Jesus. Um, and that's satisfying for us. You know, for those of you, maybe most of you have, I don't know, who have had someone close to you, you know, come to faith. You know, what can be more satisfying than that? You know, my sister shared the gospel with me. You know, what can be more satisfying than that? We in this church, there, you know, I, you know, so many of you have come to faith here. Um, but for whomever it was, what a satisfaction to think they're here. They'll be in heaven. They'll be in the new heavens and new earth because of something I said. That's so much more satisfying than, 
eating lobster tail. That's my favorite food. <laughs> it is lobster tails here and it's gone. Kind of like mad cow, right, Matt? <laughs> uh, but Jesus came to do the will of the Father. That was his food. And the will of the Father was to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus says at the end of that Luke 19 passage we looked at last week. He came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is our example here. Look at verses 40 and 41. Verses 40 and 41 here. There we see Jesus stayed two days. That's Jesus feasting. He's sharing the gospel. He's sharing the grace of God even to Samaritans, even to women, you know, which was not common for his day and among Jews during his days, which was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament. But he stays with them two days there. He's seeking and saving the lost. And then you read verse 41. See there, verse 41. And because of his words, many more became believers. See, Jesus was about growing the church. He was on his way to a festival, but he stops for two days because that was, that was his food, growing, growing the church. That was the Father's will for him. So the Father seeks worshipers. You can look back in verse 23. What kind of worshipers does he want? He wants those who worship him in truth. And about a month ago, we talked about what that meant, to worship in truth. It meant to worship the true God. And the true God is Jesus, who came to earth. Uh, and so that, that's, that's the food there. The Father seeks these worshipers who worship in truth, who worship Jesus, the true God, in the presence of the Spirit. But it's not just food for Jesus to speak and to work and to save. Um, he calls you and me to this work as well, for this to be our food as well. So there's a general sense where our food is doing God's will, obeying his commands. But there's this other sense in which doing God's will is growing his church too. Whatever we can do to grow, to grow his church. Words here and words there. So no, you can participate and are called to participate in this, just like the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Look what she does. She's found. Jesus has just said, I am the Christ. That's our message. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king of creation who came down to earth to save us. That's our message. And so she goes to her village with this message um, there. So um, she leaves her water jar, verse 28, leaving her water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And we see in Acts 1.8 that Jesus calls people to believe in him and to be, Jesus calls the people who believe in him to be his witnesses, wherever we are, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Um, we're to be his witnesses. That's his last words to his disciples. And so those are his last words to us here, to be his witnesses. Now, a few things about pursuing the growth of the church. So practical stuff for you as a Christian about growing the church. A, A, first thing. Know that, okay, this will sound counterintuitive first. Know that few will find, few will find the small gate that leads to life. Okay, that's Matthew 7, 14. Jesus said that. Only a few will find it. Um, it leads to life. The wide gate leads to destruction. The broad road leads to destruction and many enter through it. Many do, he says. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
So know this, as you pursue the growth of the church, only a few will find it. Um, but know this, that few, here's your blank, is a percentage. Few is a percentage. Okay, if you've only got 10, that's one. That's not very many. But if you've got a million, you know, and you got 10% of that, that's what, 100,000? That's a lot of people. A few of a million, that's 100,000 people. That's a lot of people with eternal life, right? So it's a, it's a percentage. It's a percentage. B, know that many, okay, now we're going to say the opposite, but we're going to explain it. Know that many and many more, I'm just quoting Jesus, <laughs> Jesus and John here, many and many more will come into Christ's kingdom through belief in him. Uh, and so, you know, verse uh, 39, uh, many come out to him. And then verse uh, 30 or verse 41, look at verse 41 there. Um, I mean, 30, 39, go ahead and look at 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So many believed. Okay, it's, a, it's a big group. Then verse 41. And because of his words, that is after Jesus had stayed two days and they, they heard more, many more became believers. And so this is our great hope um, that many and many more will come to Christ's uh, kingdom through belief in him. Um, that's the goal, people believing. Um, and that's why we read about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue this morning, um, chapter 2. Uh, we read of these kingdoms. There's the gold kingdom, the statue, the head, that's Babylon. And then there's the chest and, chest and arms of silver, and that's uh, Persia who takes over. And then there's the bronze, you know, belly and thighs, and that's, that's uh, um, uh, Greece. And then Rome comes along, and it's this iron kingdom, but iron mixed with clay down at the feet. But in the midst of this, and this is the dream Nebuchadnezzar has that he can't, he doesn't know the meaning of, but God gives Daniel the meaning of this dream. And then in the midst of this fourth kingdom, Rome, what happens? A rock not cut out by human hands. Sounds like Jesus. Comes and it smashes all the kingdoms of the world. Remember, it's a, it's a unified statue. But what crumbles the kingdoms of men is this rock that strikes the feet of the statue. And then we're told this is a kingdom that will have no end. The kingdom of Babylon had an end. The kingdom of Persia had an end. The kingdom of Greece had an end. The kingdom of Rome had an end. But in the midst of Rome comes Jesus. And he comes out from the gate saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm the rock who strikes the feet of Rome. I'm the rock who strikes the feet of all the kingdoms of men. And I'm a kingdom who won't go away. I won't end like Rome. I won't end like Babylon. I won't end like these other kingdoms. And that's how there are many in the kingdom of God. We're never the, we're never the majority because Jesus told us we wouldn't be. In terms of looking out at society, only a few will find it. But if only a few find it in every generation and every other kingdom only lasts seven generations at most, then you've got a bigger kingdom than everybody. Sounds like a mustard seed, right? Smallest seed, but it's planted 
but it grows and it grows. And over the centuries, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. Okay, and all the birds come to nest in it, which is part of Nebuchadnezzar's during the, uh, or Daniel 4 as well. And that's the case. There are many people, and they keep coming to faith in Christ. Boy, I'm getting all these references, like Neil Diamond, right? They're coming to America. They keep coming. They keep coming um, to the church. Person after person after person. So know that I think it's 10% of people who are really regenerated. Know that only one, you know, even though it may be only one, that's not from, that's not a word from the Lord, that's just me. Uh, but uh, know that, you know, maybe one in 10 people that are not believers around you will believe. But you know what? You know more than 10 people. And even if you know 10 non-believers, one of them's going to come to faith. If you know 20, two of them. If you know 100, you know, check your Facebook. You know, see how many friends you have. <laughs> Some of them are believers already, but realize this: many come to faith, and this is good. This is good hope for us, and so that takes us to this task: just knowing that that many come to believe. You know, even here in this village here, many and many more come to believe, but it's not the whole village, but it's a lot of people. A lot of people come to believe in Jesus. So have have good hope. Have good hope there. So C, C. And I, I think certainly we're the biggest kingdom now in the year 2023. I mean, all the people that have come to faith in Jesus. I mean, it, it out, it's more than, more than any kingdom that's been on the earth already. But C, know that the field, the world has many who are ripe for harvest. Jesus tells us in verse 35, don't think that there's going to be a later time when you can share the gospel and 100% of the people can believe. It's The field is ripe for harvest now. The 10%, I shouldn't be, keep saying that. That's just my opinion. That the few who do believe, Jesus does say few, so I'll say that. The few who do believe, they're ripe right now. They're ripe right now, even though it's 10%. Sorry. It's a few who are ripe. Right now, they are ripe. So seek to grow the church and do the will of the Father. They're ripe for harvest, verse 35. And D, here's the good news for us. And we talked about last week. We talked about a couple of months ago too. And this has been great news for me. D, in your growing the church, get the burden off your back and realize this. If you, if you pick up what I'm going to say, you know what I'm going to say. Simply talk. Simply talk about Jesus. And in the parentheses there, convincing isn't necessary. Simply talk about Jesus. Convincing isn't necessary. Look at what this woman says, John 4, 29. She doesn't talk about forgiveness of sins. She, she doesn't have this long discourse with people to prove to them, to bring out belief in them. Here's what she does. She says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then we get down, you know, to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans believed from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She didn't convince. She just threw something out there. And maybe all we have to throw out is I'm a Christian. Well, what do you mean? Well, I believe that Jesus is alive. I believe that he rose from the dead. And maybe they'll cut you off right there. But you've got something out there. You just throw something out there. 
like this woman. It doesn't have to be, come tell me the man who told me everything I ever did, because Jesus didn't do that to you. So you can't say that. But just whatever you have from him, you throw out there. Just something. You don't have to convince. That can, that can get their mind and their heart going. They know God is real and that he exists. That's Romans 1. They know they're suppressing the truth. They feel uncomfortable about it. And they get their guard up and they say, oh, that's silly, oh, that's silly, oh, that's silly. And they tell themselves over and over again, trying to convince themselves that what they know is true is not true because they don't have a solution yet for meeting Jesus at the last day. And so maybe what you say will get them thinking, why are people who are Christians happy? Why are they satisfied in him? So simply talk about Jesus. Um, many of the Samaritans in town believe because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. So not convincing, just talking about him. So here's our summary. Here's our summary for this morning. Um, back to food trucks. Ever see a food truck? You know, there's one, I, I love the picture of the food truck that's at, uh, uh, he hasn't been there in a long time now, about a year, at Pool Road and Pritchard, up on the way to Raleigh from where we are. It's He's literally in the dirt across from a, a grocery store that now is not a grocery store. Used to have gas there and now it's just, it's got squirrels uh, there. It's an old, an old building. But you know what? You see a food truck and it's like a gas station parking lot and people are standing there and they're eating food in a gas station parking lot. Why? Because it's good food. Yeah. And they're satisfied. That's what we look like to the world. You know, not just our church in particular. That's what we look like in, in, in the world because we've given up physical food, ordinary food, common food, for the real stuff. And so to the world, they're saying, why are they eating in a parking lot? Why are they eating in dust on a country corner? And, and, and what happens with these food trucks, how they stay in business is, is people say, this is really good. And they go back to work and, and people say, oh, what do you got? And they evangelize, right? They say, it's this food truck. He's on the Exxon, a new, you know, he's on the Exxon on Newburn, just north of 440. And they say, is it good? You say, it's really good. You ought to come. I'll go tomorrow. You can come with me. Right? That's evangelism. It's easy evangelism because there's no, you're a bad person <laughs> if, they, if they don't agree to come. And even if they say, you're crazy. I'm not, never, never going to a food truck. You'll get food poisoning. You know, you just laugh it off. It's low risk. But, but that's, that's what we are as Christians. Um, we're, we're food truck eaters. Okay, we, we, we eat the good food that Jesus has given us that the world knows nothing about. Okay. Um, lots of people around it, that's who we are. We're standing in a parking lot, so to speak. We're sitting in a bowling alley talking about how good Jesus is. Um, why? The food is really good. It's worth standing in a parking lot for, uh, whether it's dirt or asphalt. It's worth getting up on a Sunday morning for. Um, it's worth like last year, uh, worshiping him on Christmas morning instead of opening presents right away or getting up extra early to open presents, which for a kid isn't a problem anyway. <laughs> um, but um, God in this passage is showing us that 
his food is better than the common stuff of life, the, the, the getting and spending. He says to you through this passage this morning, uh, and here's your, here are your blanks for you. Have the food of your life be not ordinary common things. Have what you get excited about, what you are feeding yourself be, not your job, not your friendships, not will I get a spouse or not will I, you know, how much money will I have or can I get this car or will people like me? Have that not be your food. That's common stuff. That's what the world goes after. Uh, so that's common stuff. But have as your food the doing of the Father's will. The doing of the Father's will. That's what will satisfy your soul. And along with that, as part of doing the Father's will, the growing of Christ's church. Have that just be, you know, you can't do that when you're in your bed. But you know, you'll have little opportunities here and there where you can help grow Christ's church, even if you'll never see that person again. Uh, maybe that person will believe by something you said in a store somewhere, or on a cruise, or you know, wherever you are. Let's pray.